what can you really believe? How do you know something is true or not? There has always been spin, of course, but now it seems that almost everything we hear or read is spin. Facts have become a source of controversy. We think of spin mostly in political terms, but what if it threatened your life? When companies intentionally mislead the public about the safety of their products, it's not just spin, it's a crime. This is how companies protect themselves, their dangerous products, and their profits. And this is Green Street. Again, and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show, Patty and Doug Wood, and our worldwide network of experts. Today on Green Street, we'll talk with a scientist we originally had on the show a while ago, talking about endocrine disruption. Her latest study is about the things that big corporations do when they're faced with scientific data that show that their products or activities are harmful or dangerous. What are the most effective methods they use to confuse or mislead the public to protect themselves? That's coming up on this edition of Green Street, but first, here's Patty with the Green Street News. What are the headlines this week? UN head declares ocean emergency as global leaders gather in Lisbon. Antonio Guterres says the world must turn the tide of rising sea levels, ocean heating, acidification, and plastics pollution. The UN Secretary General has declared that the world is in the middle of an ocean emergency and has urged governments to do more to restore ocean health. Speaking at the opening of the UN Ocean Conference in Lisbon, Portugal, attended by global leaders and heads of states from 20 countries, Antonio Guterres said, sadly, we have taken the ocean for granted, and today we face what I would call an ocean emergency. We must turn the tide. This is not the first time we've heard about an ocean emergency. No. You know, are there any teeth to this? I mean, what's really going to happen? What's going to well, move the Well, it's actually the first time that they have actually formally gotten together under the UN and they have, you know, made this effort to uh, to have a conference with 20 countries. I'm wondering okay, whether really, the U.S. is going to be one of those 20 countries. Right, I don't know. Patty, it doesn't but, say. You it. know, how many conferences can we have until something gets done? I think their their basic tenet here is that we can't have a healthy planet without a healthy ocean. Yeah. And when you look at what's happening in the oceans, you know, the the world's 80 percent, 80 percent of the world's wastewater, which is basically a lot of sewage and industrial waste and so on, is discharged into oceans without treating it. Eighty percent of the world's wastewater is discharged into the oceans. And that's not even talking about the plastics problem or the next problem, which I'd like to talk about also, because this is another article that came out this week, and that's care about the planet, skip the cruise. Uh Uh-oh, okay. Yeah, so COVID-19 lockdowns are no longer preventing vacationers from traveling the globe this summer, which has caused a major jump in travel among Americans and elsewhere. More interest in travel means renewed excitement for cruises. Carnival Cruise Line and other top cruise ship companies have been breaking records for ticket sales this year. But a waterbound vacation isn't just a concern for infectious disease. These ships are having a massive effect on the climate. They're, one of the most interesting things in this article is that that sh- these cruise ships use something called bunker fuel, which is the dirtiest type of fuel. Bunker fuel puts out a lot of black carbon, sulfates and chemicals and unbelievable. It is like, literally like burning tar. Oh, great. 
you see these cruise ships and, you know, when they're under full power, there's a lot of stuff coming out the smokestack. We were on a cruise once. I remember we looking were. up and seeing, you I know. know, thinking, what in the world are they burning? It's yeah, causing no, The that. statistics are really fun. I mean, a, a cruise ship burns up to 250 tons of fuel in a single day. And that amount, okay, produces roughly the same amount of carbon emissions as 12,000 cars Ouch. in a single day. Wow. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. These are huge ships. So no more cruising. Oh, for heaven's sakes, no. I mean, we went not on a cruise that, once, and, we, we... and it was kind of fun, but we weren't even thinking about this. That was many years ago. Had we thought about it, it probably would yeah. never have happened. Okay, so another important thing is that Rome has hit its highest temperature on record as this year's heat wave sweeps Europe. Scorching temperatures have again swept across parts of Europe, with many locations in Italy. Temperatures surpassed 104 degrees Fahrenheit across much of Italy this week. On Tuesday, downtown Rome hit its warmest temperature on record at 105 degrees Fahrenheit. So, and this is also coming during one of the country's worst droughts in decades, mm. and the authorities are rationing water. This is going to become commonplace. Just get it in get your ready. head and get ready that there is going to be water rationing without question mm. and they're already doing it here I and you know they had record temperatures they set record temperatures last summer yeah so these are even higher yeah. than last summer and you know these these temperatures are coming from the african continent you know which brings you know this excessive heat from algeria to the arctic circle it's amazing mm. that's it from the newsroom okay thanks patty you're welcome are curious. We like to figure things out. Why is the world the way it is? What causes things to happen? How can we use that information to make our lives better? Day after day, week after week, and month after month, research scientists in laboratories across the country and around the world piece together tiny bits of information in an effort to advance our understanding of the world. And sometimes, but not always, they discover another clue. And because science is a collaborative effort, they share their discovery with the world by publishing the results of their work. And that's where the trouble starts. Because sometimes what scientists discover is that something we originally thought was good turns out to be not as good as we thought. And often it means that something some company is making or doing is actually harmful to our safety or health in a way we didn't understand before. And what happens next is critical. How does the public learn about this discovery? Who informs them and how? Who spins the story to their advantage and how do they do it? Dr. Laura Vandenberg is Associate Dean of Undergraduate Academic Affairs and Associate Professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and one of the world's leading authorities on endocrine disrupting chemicals and hazard assessment. Her recent study is called The Science of Spin, Targeted Strategies to Manufacture Doubt with Detrimental Effects on Environmental and Public Health. We asked Dr. Vandenberg how she got started on this study. Here's our Green Street interview with Dr. Laura Vandenberg. I'm actually a research scientist, and I've been working for about 15 years to study the effects of endocrine-disrupting chemicals. So those are chemicals that interfere with the way that hormones act in the body. And I've been studying the effects of those endocrine disruptors on outcomes that are relevant to women's health. So a lot of my research focuses on 
breast development, breast function, like your ability to make milk, and breast disease, including cancer. So a lot of my work is actually done in the lab, but I also spend about half of my research time really trying to understand how different groups and agencies and organizations use data to make decisions that are meant to be protective for public health. So like, why does the EPA do and say what it does about endocrine disruptors? And why does that differ from what academics and advocates often feel is the case for data around endocrine disruptors? So where's that disconnect coming and how can we fix it? Mm. That's big. (laughs) That's a big job. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, in the lab, I can go in and I can sort of dissect the, the fine points of biology. Like, how do our bodies actually work? which as a trained biologist, that's what I'm fascinated by. Mm -hmm. Like, think about one of the most amazing sort of miracles of science is that we all start as a single cell. And yet our bodies, for the most part, end up where everything is in the right place and it's all there at the right time. We think of it sort of as a miracle, because it kind of is, Mm -hmm. but to study the biology of how that happens is it's an amazing privilege to be able to to look at that kind of level in the lab. And I love that part. But the science that I do that's outside of the lab to try to understand information, decision-making, risk, and hazards, that's the stuff that actually sort of moves the needle the most in, in the life of a regular person. So how do we protect people from hazards in their environment that they don't even realize are there? Is it different now than it was in the past? Or has it always been that it's difficult to get the truth about something? I don't want to use the word truth. The facts about science out to the public. Well, it's a complicated life story of how science has and will be done. In the world of public health, of, of things that affect the public's health, I think a lot of the best lessons we can learn is actually from tobacco and cigarettes, um, where today no one reasonably disputes that smoking cigarettes causes lung cancer and a whole host of other chronic health problems for smokers. Mm -hmm. But there's still this big machinery out there of disinformation. And really, in, in my lifetime, in my adult lifetime, we've continued to see some of that machinery at work. So, you know, in, in 2001, I think it was, Mike Pence, who ultimately became the vice president of the United States, wrote a blog basically saying smoking doesn't kill because not every smoker dies. Oh. Right? Like, and that's, that's such a strange argument to make, and yet it's an effective one at tweaking the public's view of the data, of the evidence that actually links smoking to serious public health harm. Right? Yeah. And not everyone yeah. who smokes will die from smoking. But does that mean that we should not worry about smoking? That's not an argument that, from a public health perspective, holds much water. Of course. But it it has that little bit of ring of truth to it. It is absolutely true. Right. It's absolutely true. And that's how it manipulates people into thinking. And, and, you know, I think a lot of us have this example of, well, my great Grammy lived to be 104 (laughs) and she ate bacon every day and she smoked a cigar on Sundays. Right. We know those stories. Um, 
And we extrapolate that kind of information out in a way that we don't do the same thing for, but I also know, you know, my friend's uncle who lost his limb to diabetes because mm-hmm. of poor care, right? Mm-hmm. We, do, we somehow, we extrapolate the, the joyful stories of people who overcame bad habits um, and weren't harmed by them. But then we sort of ignore the ones that are right in front of us, of which there are so many of people who have been harmed by smoking or have been harmed by poor sugar control or have been harmed by, you know, you name it, what's in their environment. So interesting. So, and and why is it that, that the public will take the word of a politician like Mike Pence over the word of, you know, scientists, of course, you know, he has a, he has a, um, a bigger platform right to uh you know to get he's got a big megaphone he can get out there but why do people actually listen to someone who's completely unqualified to to make a statement about something like cigarette smoking and not listen to the uh to the real scientists and the real right so i i think part of this is a relatively modern idea of everyone can do research And I actually believe that it is the lovely part of creating a democratic access to scientific information. Um, This push to have more scientists publish their work in an open access format. So everyone can go and actually read the scientific studies. But most people don't choose to go read scientific studies. They still use, you know, the analysis that's published by the mainstream media Mm -hmm. or the analysis that's published on a blog. And so they don't go look at the actual data. They don't even feel comfortable going and looking at the actual data. So they'll take someone else's word for it, for what that data say. And so, right, back to this Mike Pence example, he's correct in saying, you know, that uh, only one out of nine smokers will actually die from lung cancer, something like that. Mm -hmm. So that means eight out of nine are totally fine. The data are correct, but that's a tiny snapshot of all of the data that we have about the other health effects of smoking, right? Mm -hmm. And it also doesn't look at one out of nine Compare that to if no one was smoking, how many would actually die from lung cancer? Because it's not zero, but it's not one out of nine. Exactly. And so it's, it's the way of sort of preying upon people's lack of information on a topic and also a lack of sort of the bigger picture of how science is done, about how information is collected. It also, the discussion of science becomes a discussion of celebrity. And this is actually a tactic that we've seen that industry has used is it was discussed in in documents that were released from the BPA industry, an industry that um, a chemical that I've studied. So an industry that I followed where in their documents, they talked about trying to get famous people to talk about the benefits of BPA in their lives. Right, exactly. right. So if we can get a celebrity, you know, a movie star, to talk about how great it is to have a polycarbonate baby bottle, that's good enough to convince people that it's safe. Sure. The social social media yeah. social media yeah. influencers. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. That right. we've sort of twisted this whose whose opinion really matters. Right. Um, and I think that that's a very slippery slope. Yeah. Exactly. So I would really like to get to the research that you did with your colleague, Rebecca Goldberg. And the title of this research paper is The Science of Spin, Targeted Strategies to Manufacture Doubt with Detrimental Effects on Environmental and Public Health. 
and we were just talking about one of the tactics that were used, but you have actually identified in this research that you've done five tactics that were used by all five of the industries or organizations that you, um, that you looked at. So what are these five tactics? Right. Can I back up just for sure, a second absolutely. to sort of explain what we did? Yeah. Um, so for now many years, I've been teaching an environmental health course or a series of courses at University of Massachusetts Amherst that focuses on understanding various case studies, very, very well-documented, well-described case studies where industries or organizations have taken scientific information and warped it. And so the tobacco industry is, again, the most famous one of those, where they wrote a playbook um, of what they could do as a way to confuse the public or, um, or use doubt as a way to misinform the public. And it, they got very good at it. And so I used to teach these as examples. And Rebecca was a student who came to me, and she said, I want to write something about this. Um, she was just so fascinated by it. And I thought, well, that's a clever idea mm-hmm. as a way to sort of present to a readership the fact that there's these examples that, are, that come from very different industries or organizations, but they're, they're using the same tactics over and over again. That really fascinated me. And so the first thing that Rebecca did was to go try to find the sort of formative text from these different industries. The five industries that we picked, um, we started with tobacco since it's the most commonly discussed across public health. Mm -hmm. We also looked at the coal industry and what it had done to manufacture doubt about the harm of exposure to coal and coal dust on black lung disease in Mm -hmm. its own employees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We looked at sugar industries because um, there's several really excellent books that have described the kind of scientific studies that were done by organizations that were paid by sugar industry and then by others that demonstrated that exposure to sugar, um, refined sugar, would increase risk for cardiovascular disease. And the sugar industry utilized that information to instead cast blame or doubt on high-fat diet and to hide the impact of sugar on, um, on human health. Uh, the fourth industry was the agrochemical producer of the chemical um, Pesticide, atrazine. atrazine, right. Yeah, yeah, which, is, which got a lot of attention a few years ago. And so this is a, a pesticide that, that's used to control weeds and it's an endocrine disruptor, and really this is an example of an industry that, or a company, that went after a single person, Um, and and that's the story of Dr. Tyrone Hayes, Mm -hmm. where his evidence and his data were really showing that atrazine caused harm specifically to amphibians, Mm -hmm. and they targeted him personally. And then the last is the example of the Marshall Institute, which was a post-Cold War um, institute that had to pivot from work focused on on the Cold War, which uh, after the Cold War ended, 
the institute didn't want to disband. They really, the people who were associated with that institute enjoyed having a closeness to the, the federal government. And so they pivoted and became an institute that was focused on climate change, but really on dispelling any research or any knowledge about climate change, any acknowledgement of climate change at the level of the federal government. And they took a lot of money from um, fossil fuel industry. oil and gas. Yeah. 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 But, yeah more multinational um, companies. So, so these are very different examples. And so it's almost insane to think that you could look across these five different industries or groups and learn something from them. And yet what we found is that across these five organizations or groups, um, there were 28 unique tactics that were used by these organizations to either try to combat known scientific facts or, or knowledge or evidence. So they were working to counter scientific knowledge that was damaging to their profits or to their um, place. And then there were other tactics that were used to promote narratives that were favorable um, to the industry. And so 28 unique tactics were identified across these five um, industries, but five of those 28 were used by all five of the organizations. So I don't know if you want to dig into those a little bit deeper. Yeah, I mean, if you could just mention, you know, the five strategies um, that they that they all used that seemed to be, you know, the most successful, know, shall successful? we say? Yeah. Good grief. Yeah, I mean, clearly these are strategies because they work across these five very different kinds of organizations. It sort of implies that they're very productive. Mm-hmm. They're very seductive, right? <laughs> they they allow an industry to promote their agenda. So the first one is to attack the study design of any study that was used to produce information that suggests harm from their industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right, in this example, it would be the very first studies that showed that tobacco was associated with increased risk for cancer. Well, an association doesn't mean that it's causing that. So, you know, that's an easy way to sort of start to attack the study mm-hmm. um, and to attack the, the way that the data were collected. And I say this with all of the acknowledgement that a scientist should have, that no study is perfect. You mm-hmm. can always attack a study. Sure. Mm-hmm. But these are attacks that are done really for the purpose of poking holes in, in evidence. Mm-hmm. The second tactic is to recruit individuals who are considered reputable individuals to defend information that is supportive of the industry. So the Mike Pence example that I gave earlier, where mm-hmm. Mike Pence writes a um, writes an editorial that's in defense of the tobacco industry, that's a great example of a person who um, who's considered a reputable individual, even though he has no scientific credentials. Right? He's he's a person who is well known to that community. That you know, Laura. Let me just stop you for a second. I mean, it it, it is so widely accepted, I would think, in the public mind that smoking uh, is harmful. Does it really help? I mean, for an industry that that's that far back on its heels to wheel out somebody to say, "Oh no, I think it's fine." Does the does the does the did you find that that strategy really worked? 
Yeah, I'm, it's especially in cases like I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but especially no, in no, cases, especially in cases like tobacco, where it's I think the game is over on tobacco. Or am I just am I wrong about that? I mean, <laughs> no, no, wait a second. And I want to add to that. I mean, you know, if you have to fill out a form, if you go to a doctor's office, right, you fill out a form and says, do you smoke? Sure. And how much do you yeah, smoke? Yeah, but you know people lie, right? So, <laughs> yeah, but, I, but, they ask the, but they ask the question. Yeah. So it gives it legitimacy, right? Um, well, and everybody has done this. Everybody has filled out this one and seen that it asks you whether you're a smoke because that's a risk factor. Absolutely. I mean, the cost of getting um, of getting life insurance is different for smokers sure. versus non-smokers. That's right. um, but they also know that people lie, so people will tell you that they're not smokers, so they'll collect your urine, and then they can measure the metabolite from the cigarette smoke in right. your urine. Yeah, so, yeah, and, yeah. and in fact, right, there's, there's human biomonitoring studies that suggest that somewhere around 30% of smokers lie to their physicians about whether or not they're smokers. So the people know that it's bad for them, and yet they still aren't even honest about it. Mm. Um, I think that a lot of the gaining support from reputable individuals is something that you do at, at earlier phases of this manufacturing doubt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and right, so the tobacco industry doing that in the 50s and 60s and 70s and even 80s, where they would say, um, here's an example of a judge, and look, he smokes camels. Mm. Right, yeah. here, right. You, X out of, X out of Y doctors prefer R.J. Reynolds cigarettes, yep. right? right? So they would use that. That's that. The whole purpose of that is to suggest that people who know more than you, Joe Q, mm-hmm. um, think that this is a good thing to do, or think that this is a safe thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it does work. I think the, you know, even in the year 2001, um, I'm trying to think about like where in my life course was I? So like, what did I know about tobacco smoking in 2001? So I was in college in 2001. Did I think that smoking was dangerous? Yep. Um, that had been a message that I had received really throughout my entire childhood. But if I, in 2001, had read an editorial that said, you do realize only one out of nine smokers will die from lung cancer, I would have thought, wow, really, that's it? Yeah, not so bad. It's not as bad as you would think. What You're not comparing that to, you know, only one out of 900 non-smokers will die, right? Like, you don't mm-hmm. know what the comparison mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. So I think numbers fool us in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why it remains an effective tool to have someone that people respect say, wait a second here, let me poke some holes in it. Mm -hmm. Because you're not Mm going to change people's minds about whether or not it's dangerous. You're going to change their minds about how dangerous is it? How risky is it? Do I really need to quit? I'm already smoking. Mm -hmm. Do I really need Mm -hmm. to quit? Or is it okay if I keep smoking for another couple of years? I'll quit when I'm 40, right? Oh, I'll quit when I'm 45. Yeah, and of I course, that that's part of it. It's sure. so hard to quit smoking that any little, any little bit of evidence that maybe you don't have to do it, I suspect, would be so difficult for for smokers who are addicted to. Uh, Absolutely, to, to absolutely. Yeah, they're they're um, going to glom onto that, sure. and that's all mm. they're going to. That's all they. That's all they want to know. We as humans are so bad at evaluating risk. <laughs> Right? I, I yeah. ask my students all the time, okay, how many of you are afraid of sharks in the ocean? Right? You get like 10% of them raise their hands. Right. And I'm like, okay, how many of you are afraid of vending machines? But you're much more likely to be killed by a vending machine falling on top of you, right? Like we're not, <laughs> which is also a ridiculous thing to be afraid of. Right. We're not nearly as afraid of heart disease as we should be. Mm. Right? We're just not because it's so common. 
Exactly. We're not, most of us are not afraid to get in the car and go to the grocery store, and yet we're much more likely to die going to the grocery store than we are, you know, from a pack of killer bees. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. we just have these misperceptions of risk because our brains are trained to be afraid of things that we don't understand right. and that we don't see a lot of. We see a lot of heart disease, so it's not frightening to us. And that's really unfortunate because, you know, it's the leading killer in the United States and globally. You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood. And our guest today has been Dr. Laura Vandenberg, Associate Dean of Undergraduate Academic Affairs and Associate Professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Patty and I will be back next week with more news and information you can use to live a better life. Until then, please stay safe, stay well. We'll see you next time.